Happy holidays, Teddy. Merry Christmas, Nick. Teddy, Teddy, you can't say that. You have to be careful. Why can't I say Merry Christmas? You know, there's a war on. A war? Yeah, a war on Christmas. Oh, God, I forgot about that. Welcome to Oh God, I Forgot About That, the podcast where we explore artifacts from turn-of-the-millennium Christian culture. Hey everyone, this is Nick Something Italian. A friend of mine pointed out an erroneous claim from our VeggieTales episode. I had said there were no episodes that featured stories from the New Testament. However, I was wrong. There is. The episode Are You My Neighbor features the story of Flibro Lou, which is a Susian retelling of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, you can't get them all right. So if you catch us being wrong about stuff, like I'm sure we're going to be, then let us know so we can correct it. Reach out on our socials or send us an email at ohgodiforgot.pod at gmail.com. That's O-H-G-O-D-I-F-O-R-G-O-T dot P-O-D at gmail.com. With that, I'll return you to our regularly scheduled depressing conversation on the war on Christmas. So, Teddy, did you actually forget the war on Christmas? Unfortunately, I did not forget the war on Christmas. And this might be one of the first artifacts that I say this about. Um, But how could you forget it? Absolutely. They don't let you. No, I mean, (laughs) they don't let you. (laughs) They don't let you. They will never relent. I mean, listen, if they surrender, then the war's over. Right, right. This very, very long war. What are we in now? What decade? Uh, Depending on the timeline, we're (laughs) at least in the third decade. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so, so talk to me about what this war on Christmas uh did to you <laughs> to, to put it more uh to put it less provocatively how does the war on christmas exist in your memories and uh in your present life so if i had to trace the war on christmas historically um in our era i would put it and i don't know if this is the origin the true origin i i don't know if he was this he was the true creator but i immediately think of bill o'reilly in maybe the early 2000s, I remember us being at the height of Af- the, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan war, so much going on in that political climate. And I remember this program he did called Christmas Under Siege. Yep. <laughs> and if I am recalling correctly, feel free to fact check me. I recall him basically setting up this argument, which was and we've talked about this before in our other episodes. There is an increased secularization in our culture that's leading to increased troubling policies that the right doesn't agree with, same-sex marriage, for instance, um, and is probably what caused 9-11. I know this is a rough connection, but it's what caused 9-11. And the way, one way this manifests in a relatively subtle, but what Bill O'Reilly would say needs our attention, is the also increased secularization of Christmas. Absolutely. That's my memory of it. And then I remember it just sort of from there completely unraveling. And now it remains in my consciousness kind of this thing that's always there, prominent in Christian discourse year after year after year, 
but yet never really materializing in any sort of like, I don't have any evidence of it in my actual like real lived experiences. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be a real trend is that this thing exists on a rhetorical level on perhaps a philosophical level. Mm -hmm. Um, but there isn't quite the resonance into the lived lives of actual people. So that's a really great introduction to this idea of the war on Christmas. You are 100% correct that uh, particularly in our generation, Bill O'Reilly is the progenitor of this idea. Mm. Um, He's not the first person to have these complaints, as we'll see later on in our episode, but he is definitely the person who weaponized I'm trying to think of a less violent word, but it is a war after all. Yeah. Uh, weaponize the rhetoric most efficiently. And at such a perfect time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Time. Yeah. And, and I want to I want to latch on to that thinking for a minute in a time where war after war seemed to begin and continue ad infinitum, uh, adding another war to the slate mm-hmm. was almost trivial. Right. Right. Uh, We're already in for a war. We're here being patriotic, fighting for what we believe in. At least that's how it's marketed. Right. Like what became a philosophical war was really our true forever war. Right. Mm -hmm. I've seen a few different people refer to the war on Christmas as the the only true forever war. (laughs) Right. That's debatable. But it is definitely important to keep in mind that the early 2000s politics were inundated with war language mm-hmm. with the language of militants and militarism do, did you do you remember ever connecting those two ideas as a kid i mean i know i didn't yeah that was never really something on my radar but i don't know no i don't think so I, you know in hindsight, it's like Bill O'Reilly was tapping into a reality that did exist. We were becoming more secularized and yeah. there were revised policies and things shifting around in our culture morally and ideologically. Um, and maybe as a Christian at the time, I would have felt an anxiety about that and believed that that existed. But the the Christmas connection no. And I would say that if you had, you would have been a particularly psychotic child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, to be fair, my uh, my church community didn't really talk about it that much either. Oh, that's interesting. So, you know, it was a it was definitely like a problem. Then again, I say this as if I was someone who was frequently in and out of both Christian and secular spaces. I was not. So I was only in Christian spaces where Christmas was not under siege. So, you know, there's just a chance I was sheltered enough that like, I didn't see this happening, but. And and you know what? Notably, uh, we were the target victims, right? We were the children. We were the poor Christian children who were having our like Jesus day tampered with. Yeah. So yeah. Us being intentionally sheltered from the reality of the war on Christmas, whether that's the rhetoric itself or actual instances of it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Right? We want to get that out of the view of the children, which we were at the time. Mm-hmm. So before we go any further, I want to lay out some thoughts, um, about what I don't want to do and what I do want to do this episode. Okay. So here's what I don't want to do. Sing a Christmas carol. (laughs) 
no, no, we don't sing Christmas carols here. Uh, all, <laughs> of our carols, <laughs> all of our carols need to be non-denominational and secular. Holiday songs only. Holiday songs only. That's right. Uh, there's a great episode of Community where they, they have a Christian character and she's always talking about like being oppressed because it's Christmas time. And at the end of the episode, she actually becomes more understanding and she sings a oh. secular version of uh, Silent Night. She goes, what is it? Uh, secular night, appropriate <laughs> night. So, yeah, that's that's the only kind of caroling we'll be doing around here. OK, uh, no, but what I don't want to do is spend time tediously fact checking what's already been debunked. Like fact checking is important. Research skills are are really important in corroborating these stories. We're going to see is something that makes them all quickly fall apart. But to spend our entire episode doing that sort of thing would not be enjoyable to listeners. And to be honest, who's got the time for that? Mm -hmm. Instead, uh, I'd rather spend our time analyzing the rhetoric and sort of the cultural impact of this idea. Okay. Second, I don't want to demonize anybody who celebrates Christmas or who doesn't celebrate Christmas. I really don't want to paint with a broad brush uh, Christians that care about Christmas. They're not hate fill a hate filled mob, you know, or anything like that. Like, I genuinely want to discuss how these sincere fears, whether they're valid or not, like whether they're actually like correlating to anything in the real world or not mm -hmm. have been co-opted by the very forces of commodification that christians say the war on christmas is about interesting I, I genuinely believe that there's a valid fear somewhere buried in this war on christmas mm -hmm. sure. um that has been greatly exploited and weaponized like i said before yeah okay that's my do's and don'ts for this episode. I'm on board. You were very correct in saying that uh, Bill O'Reilly is sort of the progenitor of the modern war on Christmas. So the first thing I want to do is discuss the war on Christmas as a contemporary moral panic. What that means when we use that phrase, because a moral panic is a specific thing. Then I want to dive into some of the history. Uh, we're going to do long view of history, not just um, sticking to our niche time zone of the turn of the millennium. Then I want to discuss a few specific textual artifacts uh, from our time period moving up into uh, the contemporary days. Does that sound like a good plan to you? Sweet. A jolly good time. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! Uh, we've already talked about the forever war mentality that sort of coincides with the other forever wars, Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's kind of ironic that our uh, fears, these like genuine with an asterisk fears of secularization and commercialism made up this whole war. It became an industry after Bill O'Reilly segment. So Bill O'Reilly segment first airs in 2004. Mm. And let me pull up here the first segment that I would like you to read. This is from the first Christmas Under Siege O'Reilly segment in 2004. If you could read that for me. So this is him speaking. This is Bill O'Reilly. Right. He's doing like a like a, a night night talk monologue. All right. 
Now, all of this anti-Christian stuff is absurd and even be a biased situation. But the real reason it's happening has little to do with Christmas and everything to do with organized religion. Secular progressives realize that America, as it is now, will never approve of gay marriage, partial birth abortion, euthanasia, legal drugs, income redistribution through taxation, and many other progressive visions because of religious opposition. But if the secularists can destroy religion in the public arena, the brave new progressive world is a possibility. There is so much going on there. (laughs) A lot to unpack there. (laughs) I mean... So before I get into any of my thoughts on this, what are your reactions to this incredible sequence of sentences? Well, my first reaction is that's putting a lot of weight on freaking Christmas. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Like Hallmark puts less pressure on Christmas. Right. Um, The revision of Christmas is going to be responsible also for policies like gay marriage, partial birth, abortion, euthanasia, legalized drugs, income redistribution. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. They're all over the map. Like legitimately everything. Yeah. If Uh, Christmas is gone, then the queers will marry. All right. Right. Will murder children like like a partial birth abortion isn't a real thing. But if the secularists can destroy religion in the public arena, Mm -hmm. a.k.a. Christmas, the brave new progressive world is a possibility. So what he's doing is setting up here, you know, just this idea that it starts with the trivial, the seemingly trivial. Right. Right. Which is the holidays. And then from there, we just continue to to chip away at things like liberty, freedom, whatever, all of the whatever these things would all embody in the conservative. Right. O'Reilly here is just explicitly laying out the game plan, the the degree to which the slope will be slippery, if you will. Yeah. And indeed, quite slippery. It is quite slippery. (laughs) I mean, especially when you start to see the things that are labeled uh, acts of war. Right. right, Battlegrounds in this war. I'm going to use a lot of militant language in this episode. I don't like to do that because I really hate using violent language to discuss ideas and words, but it is sort of the rhetoric of this piece. So I want to kind of adopt that language here just as a a random blanket statement. I will brace myself. You see here that like O'Reilly is setting the stage for the war. The war is Christmas represents organized religion in the public sphere, Mm -hmm. right? So. Especially when O'Reilly uses it, but also when other people use it, you can you sort of see Christmas as a shorthand for conservative ideology, conservative policies. Yeah, which is an odd conflation, I would say. It is say. a very odd conflation. Yeah. Until we start to stare down the corridor of history, which we'll come to in a few minutes. Okay. But, but that instinct is perfect, and I really appreciate you pointing that out here. This feels absurd. Right. Mm-hmm. All this anti-Christian stuff is absurd. Yeah, Bill, in more than one way. Mm. This is the setting of the stage. As we look into the other elements of the moral panic at the time, we start to see a lot of other people writing about this. So the text we're going to spend most time talking about later today is John Gibson's book, The War on Christmas. How the liberal plot to ban the sacred Christian holiday is worse than you thought. Oh boy. Okay. That is one hell of a subtitle. 
Ban. Wow. Ban. Yeah. But he's not the only one to write a book about the war on Christmas. Teddy, do you um, just a brief question here? Know of anybody else who wrote a book about the war on Christmas? Hell yes, I do. Sarah Palin. Yes. Yes, she did. (laughs) Sarah Palin wrote Good Tidings and Great Joy, Protecting the Heart of Christmas. I am going to give you an excerpt from her introduction. Okay. I would like you to read. It's a little bit long, but I want you to go for it. There's two. There's two images that I pasted into our document here. There was definitely like a 2008 version of me that could have done Sarah Palin's voice perfectly, but I haven't heard it in a while. So I'm not, I'm not. Oh man. I did Carmen. You did do Carmen. That's true. And I mean, wasn't it Tina Fey, a Greek lady Mm -hmm. who like did the best Sarah. So I should be able to, but you know, I don't want to take away from her important message here. So, okay. (laughs) So this is what she says. And this gets to the heart of it, doesn't it? These Christmases are more fragile than I want to admit. Since Todd and I first began our life together, so much has happened. We've experienced five babies, countless scraped needs and stitches, 20 iron dog races, seven political campaigns, two tear-filled army deployments and safe returns, one VP run, two amazing grandchildren, and more than one ridiculous magazine cover, and a few bumps in the road along the way. It's a miracle what families can endure, and I've always appreciated our ability to stick together through the toughest of times. It seems inherent and perfectly appropriate that families do, quote, circle the wagon, end quote, in challenging times. No matter what, my family will always do Christmas together. But while our family has worked hard to hold tight to our Christmas traditions, I wonder just how easy it will be in the future to joyfully and openly celebrate. Christmas has come under the attack in recent years. And it's just not some figment of the religious rights imagination. I think of this every time I see a news story about an ACLU letter warning a school district not to sing Silent Night or when a college group isn't permitted to advertise a Christmas tree sale or when Merry Christmas is replaced by the more politically correct Happy Holidays, all to avoid giving offense. I'm concerned that the years of relentless attacks against the holiday will eventually drain the joy from our public spaces as well as from our minds and hearts. Our cultural elites have even gone out of their way to create legal doctrines that allow, quote, offended observers, end quote, to file lawsuits against public religious displays like nativity scenes. Even though in virtually no other area of law does a person have a right to go to court merely because they are offended by something a school or a town does. These same elites often treat these thin-skinned, litigious citizens as cultural heroes fighting against a tradition they despise while they laugh at folks offended when symbols of our cultural heritage are stripped from the public sphere. These sentences are constructed like Sarah Palin speaks. <laughs> they are, yeah. So uh, so start with reactions. What are your thoughts here? First of all, the um, it seems inherent and perfectly appropriate that families do circle the wagon in challenging times, no matter what, my family will always do Christmas together. That's one of those examples of a statement where I'm like, Literally, everybody feels that way. <laughs> like, yes. this is not special. You know? yeah. um, most people, especially at the holiday season, no matter what doctrine that holiday is rooted for you in, would say it's about family and how great it is that we have hopefully people in our lives who weather the storm with us. Yeah, I'm going to spoil something 
for uh, the future, but even the pagan roots of Christianity are about togetherness and community and family. We're talking about pretty much human nature here in most modern societies. And then the second thing, you know, that's really obvious is I'm concerned that the years of relentless attacks against the holiday will eventually drain the joy from our public spaces as well as from our minds and hearts. So here we're getting back to that, the same thing we saw with Bill O'Reilly, which is that slippery slope idea, right? Right. That there's going to be this slow, slow chipping away. And then eventually all the joy will be drained from our public spaces as well as from our minds and hearts, which is interesting. That's like, now you're saying they can take it away from from you personally as an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that also mirrors O'Reilly's invocation of Brave New World, uh, right? Like this idea that a dystopian future exists where if the elites, as Palin puts it, can mm-hmm. control the social sphere or the public sphere, they will then be able to alter the individual. Got it. Right? Because again, in just as a literature nerd moment in Brave New World, they literally like biologically program people from birth. Got it. Yeah. Right. So there's all of that kind of dystopian sci-fi language even coded into the background of this. Mm-hmm. Two other things that I want to point out here is the connection to the idea of family and the idea of offense or political correctness. Mm-hmm. The rhetoric of like, oh, these people are allowing themselves to abuse the legal system because they're soft skinned. Right. Like I, this weird, ironic, the snowflakes are ruining Christmas. Mm-hmm. Like, even though Christmas is about the snow. <laughs> <laughs> they just they dis- specifically depict folks having a problem with these things as offenses mm-hmm. and sensitivity instead of some of what these actual complaints are about. And again, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but also there's this rhetoric of the family, which is a talking point that conservative folks have been using for decades. Sure, sure. There's the family narrative, the Christmas narrative and the offense narrative, which are all dog whistle kind of phrase. But Palin is not the only one that wrote a book. There's a bunch of other books. I'll just name two notable ones. Bodie Hodge wrote this book, uh, War on Christmas Battles and Faith Tradition and Religious Expression. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it's pretty much the same thing as Gibson's. It's just a little more specific in like listing other battlegrounds. Uh, mm. An interesting one is Lee Strobel wrote The Case for Christmas. Oh, that sounds familiar. Yeah. I mean, he wrote his case for Christ and the case for creation and the case for this. And again, he added one for Christmas to capitalize on this thing. And uh, a a uh, liberal pundit put together a satirical war on Christmas field manual, which is kind of funny. Um, everybody's capitalizing on this. Before we get into seeing some more of this rhetoric, I want to discuss what a moral panic is. Okay. And how the war on Christmas fits that structure. Mm. So we're going to use one particular example and discuss the, the, the moral panic structure. So we're borrowing this structural outline 
from some more news who put a really great episode together on moral panics. So definitely go check that out. They've got a ton of sources. Really good work. The first is take something true, a true story and lie about it. Now, the lie doesn't have to be a big lie. It can just simply be a lie of omission. So uh, Mm. the example that we're going to use is from 2021 when the Fox News Christmas tree was set on fire. Oh, I remember that. Yes. It was like by a homeless person, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. So probably not what they thought. No, absolutely not. It was a 50 foot artificial tree. Yes. Set ablaze outside of a Fox News headquarters. His direct quote is, I've been thinking about lighting the tree on fire all day. I'm looking at the Fox News article for it, and it's a lot of like he allegedly did this and he oh, allegedly did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm and looking it's a lot up. of like uh, police charged him with seven counts, including criminal nuisance, criminal trespass, criminal tampering, disorder and conduct, which are not bail eligible crimes. So they're making this big deal about how he was released without bail, but these weren't bail eligible crimes. He pulled down his pants at a certain point. Somebody claims, mm, um, can't do that. No, it it just seems like an act of arson that was disconnected from like it actually being a Christmas thing or a Christian thing. There's no mm-hmm. language that I could find from the actual guy. There's also no evidence that it is about Christmas within the Christian context. Right. But, like. One could set fire to a Christmas tree if they were really in deep poverty and be like, fuck consumerism. Right. That's not what Christians are worried. They're thinking this is about Jesus, which is right. I'm I'm not even saying he had any intentions at all other than like just being, you know, whatever was going through his head that I'm not saying there was some sort of big political message behind it. But what's funny is that they kind of even missed the point that like there is actually a setting fire to the tree that could be a secular critique i mean a christian critique of the secularization of christmas right exactly like (laughs) like it feels very um what's the word like uh a chris charles dickens a christmas carol you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) anarchy version it's like you know um all of this is just show and here's what let's get back to the basics there are people suffering and don't have homes and you know how do we know we didn't mean that right but yeah it was way more convenient, I guess, to make it a like, not like he set a manger on fire, you know? Right, exactly. So he he burns down this, you know, Christmas icon. Mm-hmm. That's, again, not even like a, not a Rockefeller symbol. tree or anything like that. Right, or, yeah. yeah, right. That. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. He's just so there's this thing that happened. It's a true story that some guy burned down this Christmas tree. Mm hmm. But they conveniently leave out a few things and conveniently allege certain other things. And they couch their language in such a way so as to make this feel targeted. Mm -hmm. The second part of a moral panic is explicitly othering language. So you'll notice in the reports about the Christmas tree, it's there's always going to be opposition to our points of views and our way of life. And this thing is a symbol for what we stand for. And other people hate that. Right. The third is media exacerbation. Everybody's jumping in on this, right? Mm -hmm. Fox News gets in on this, runs stories on radio, on TV, in their in their uh, 
blogs and stuff like that. Even the Daily Show got in on this and started making fun of Fox News for getting uh, bothered by that. But that's part of media exacerbation. In fact, throughout the whole Bill O'Reilly Christmas under siege of the early 2000s, John Stewart had a regular segment shitting on Bill O'Reilly's regular segment. Oh, interesting. Which just perpetuates the discourse. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I'm all for like taking a satirical take on ridiculousness. Obviously, I wouldn't be here if I didn't. Right. But again, it's media exacerbation. It's perpetuating mm -hmm. the discourse, like you so well said. And then finally, the quote unquote right people are always victimized. Um, and I, and I kind of take this as a, a pun, right? It's the people on the right are victimized or the correct people are victimized. In this case, Fox News and their multi-billion dollar organization, right? Yeah. Like there's also a really interesting like class struggle coded into this, right? The, the largest media conservative media conglomerate in the world, basically against mm -hmm. a homeless man. Right. That's right, much but they're the victims somehow. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Right. So we're going to see this structure play out over and over and over again, uh, especially in the more contemporary stuff. So the, the structure being there is this true thing that happens, an objective reality, an event or something, you know, an event, something said, something happens that is then sort of inflated to mean maybe 50 other things. Right. OK. And then run through the media and then making the sure that there okay. is a particular like correct side. And like it's it's turned into, again, military language. Yeah. This is a battleground, which I have to do some creative reading to make it that mm -hmm. I have to say who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, who was harmed. You know, it kind of goes reminds me of that injunction that was put on media during the like uh, early years of the Afghanistan war, right? They had to start listing casualties in oh, the right. number of 9-11s that it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. All right. I get what you're doing. You're lying about it. You're othering. You're like, it's the same playbook for panicking about other stuff, mm -hmm. uh, which is why I think that it's important to, to discuss here. back do you think that war on christmas thinking even if it's not the exact same rhetoric how far back do you think that stretches the 1950s okay probably good not guess. far enough right good guess you're gonna be like it was the 1560 <laughs> i would like you to read this quote okay and tell me when you think this is from Last Christmas, most people had a hard time finding Christmas cards that indicated in any way that Christmas com commemorated someone's birth. Someone Easter, is capitalized. Someone's capitalized. Yeah. Easter, they will have the same difficulty in finding Easter cards that contain any suggestion that Easter commemorates a certain event. There will be rabbits and eggs and spring flowers, but a hint of the resurrection will be hard to find. Now, all this begins with the designers of the cards. And even in this business, one comes upon the same policy of declaring anti-Semitic everything that is Christian. 
if Rabbi Khafri says the New Testament is the most anti-Semitic book ever written, what must be the judgment on an Easter card if that is truly an Easter card? I'm sorry. What was your question again? Yeah. When do you think this was said or do you have any idea who may have said it? I actually do not know when it was said. Or by whom. Yeah. But doesn't it sound like Bill O'Reilly could have said it? Yeah. Was it like a president or something? No, it is. Who is it? From 1920. 1920. This is from 1920 from the king of capitalism himself, Mr. Henry Ford. No. In a pamphlet entitled The International Jew, the World's Foremost Problem. I'm going to read another quote here. Um, I won't make you say this. I'll say it. Okay. I'm quoting Henry Ford here. (laughs) Quote, not only do the Jews disagree with Christian teaching, which is their perfect right and no one dare question it, but they seek to interfere with it. It is not religious tolerance in the midst of religious difference, but religious attack that they preach and practice. The whole record of Jewish opposition to Christmas, Easter, and certain patriotic songs shows that. Wow. Cancel Henry Ford. I mean, for so many reasons. The guy literally states in this exact grouping of pamphlets that Hitler had some pretty good ideas. Okay. Yeah. So moral of the story, this discourse is not 2004. This is not. I also (laughs) want to make a quick correction on what I just said. Obviously, in 1920, Hitler wasn't like in power, but Hitler had started his rhetoric and the Nazi power had started uh, Nazi, you know, whatever party had started gaining some ground. And so he was like sympathizing with the Nazis and he would later like talk positively of Hitler. So I just want to clarify that. I know that my chronology isn't perfect there, but so you notice that this rhetoric, the exact rhetoric that we see in Bill O'Reilly is rooted in anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lest we think that anti-Semitism, well, that was back then, right? Obviously, that's a problem, and we can t- condemn anti-Semitism, but really, we can't say that that's a problem contemporarily. Two years, no, sorry, five years before Bill O'Reilly started his war on Christmas stuff. Peter Brimelow. Does that name sound familiar to you? I don't think so. Peter Brimelow launched a website called V-Dare, named after Virginia Dare, who was the first white child born in America. Oh, okay. It was condemned by the Anti-Defamation League as racist, anti-Semitic, and anti-immigrant. He is the person who coined the phrase war on Christmas. Mm Mm-hmm. In a post in which he said that it was the part of the, quote, struggle to abolish America. Wow. Uh, you can find the post in the Wayback Machine. It's something. But it reads as just a not veiled version of what O'Reilly says and what Tucker Carlson is saying these mm-hmm. days. The link between specifically anti-Semitism, but like anti-immigrant, anti-other is linked way back into the bedrock Mm. most of the early contentions excuse me of christmas displays were brought up by jewish folks saying uh hey guys uh public school right public meaning for everybody you are 
forcing my kids to talk about this Jesus person that goes against our religious beliefs. Mm. My child isn't learning anything about Hanukkah. And it's like, I don't care that you want to give every kid a break for Christmas. But I also don't want you to force my kid to practice Christian rituals. Mm. Because of all the minorities that had any sort of like social agency mm-hmm. before the Civil Rights Act, it's Jewish folks, right? That's interesting because I think a lot of times this is framed as purely a fight being waged between Christians and atheists. Like mm. people who are not devout, people who have no religion at all, um, people who Christians would argue be the least sympathetic to. And what you're saying is that some of the first sort of like offenses and and sort of infringements upon, you know, freedom of religion and all that were actually more within the discourse was more about Jewish folks than it was about, you know, sort of strict non-believers, you know. Yeah, I'm thinking like I think they think it's like a bunch of, you know, Christopher Hawkins or whatever, you know, like those sorts of. Yeah. Kitchens, yeah, those sort those sort of atheists running around like perpetuating yeah. this. Yeah, and and really, what we see, um, particularly throughout uh, the fifties and the forties, is it's like an anti-Jewish thing. Interesting. Um, there was in 1954, Women's Wear Daily talk about a source uh, <laughs> cited developments that pointed to a nationwide spiritual t- trend. In retail holidays, Mm. Uh, the Christmas Street Decoration Committee of Waterloo, Iowa Chamber of Commerce followed the lead of many other towns in Iowa, putting Christ back in Christmas to express this idea. A nativity scene was placed in Soldiers and Sailors Park here. It is lighted at night with a 46 inch aluminum star above a 15 life side figures in the scene. Mm. This is 1954. Someone's invoking putting Christ back in Christmas. Interesting. And it was because there was a nativity scene and local Jewish folks said, hey, if you're going to have religious symbols up there, we're here. Why don't you put up a menorah or a Star of David or something for us? Mm. Uh, or like keep the Christmas tree, but take down the nativity thing. Right. I think this historical trajectory is really important because it kind of debunks Bill O'Reilly's and Sarah Palin's sort of claim that they were in a uniquely unique culture where the secularization, you know, like mm-hmm. they, they make it seem as if like for such a time as this, you know, mm-hmm. like we are like in this moment. And yes, of course, there was, as we already you know said, it is a time where there's increased secularization. But this idea that this is actually a, a a kind of anxiety that can be charted over the course of the last 100 years sort of weakens, I think, the urgency, the need for the urgency, you know, in, in 2004 or whatever that, you know, whatever year Riley O'Reilly was. It's, it's almost like we've been having the same conversation for a century. <laughs> no wonder and yet nothing's happened. Yeah. Exactly. And yet nothing's happened. Exactly. Yeah. What I will say about a lot of these cases that we're going to discuss is that there's a kind of perpetual enemy starting back in the 80s, and that's the ACLU, the American Civil Mm -hmm. Civil Liberties Unit. Okay, as the sort of instigators. Yeah, they're viewed as instigators. Really, most of the facts 
of these cases are the ACLU said, hey, you know, someone said you guys are being you're favoring one religion over another or you're making it particularly difficult for people of other religions to not practice yours or a religious folks to remain. So you should probably stop that. And is always viewed as a threat. And this really comes from 1987, um, the ACLU versus Allegheny County. This actually happened in Pittsburgh. According to the way this is lit, uh, listed out in a case studies database, uh, two public sponsored holiday displays in Pittsburgh were challenged by the ACLU. The first display involved a Christian nativity scene inside inside the Allegheny County Courthouse. Wow. The okay. second display was a Hanukkah menorah erected each year by the Shabbat Jewish organization outside the city county building. Mm. The ACLU claimed the displays constituted state endorsement of religion. The case was decided together with Shabbat v. ACLU and City of Pittsburgh versus the ACLU. This went to the Supreme Court. Wow. In a 5-4 decision. The court held that the creche inside the courthouse unmistakably endorsed Christianity in violation of the Establishment Clause by prominently displaying the words, Glory to God for the birth of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. The county sent a clear message that it supported and promoted Christian orthodoxy. The court also held, however, that not all religious celebrations on government property violate the Establishment Clause. Six of the justices concluded that the display involving the menorah was constitutionally legitimate given its particular physical setting. And that was that there was a menorah and a Christmas tree. Oh, okay. So there's two. It's really interesting that there are two very different contexts. One is an explicit declaration of a religious doctrine. Mm hmm. Right. Glory to God for the birth of Jesus Christ. That is a doctrine, basically. I've, I've read doctrinal statements that say things like that. Yeah, sure. Whereas the other one was multiple uh, holiday specific invocations. Now, Hanukkah is obviously a religious holiday and the menorah has religious significance, but it also falls into that muddy space where. Jewish culture and Jewish religion are a little bit inseparable, mm-hmm. but it's still a specifically holiday oriented uh, icon. Mm-hmm. So this Supreme Court decision sort of is the groundwork for establishment clause violation litigation for the next uh, 30 year, 30 plus years, 35 years. Mm-hmm. Notice that it combines two things the ACLU and Jewish folks. Right, right. So the ACLU said, don't do this Jesus thing, but the Jews are okay. And I'm obviously caricaturing this position because I'm trying to make fun of the the perspective that misunderstands this. Mm -hmm. The point is, contextually, one isn't expressing consent and support for a particular religion. The other is celebrating multiple religious holidays using more uh, neutral iconography. And kind of exist coexisting in a more neutral way because there's more than one represented. Like it renders them more neutral. The fact that they're coexisting. Yes. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because ultimately, and this is sort of the the main liberal line that doesn't get believed, is the war on Christmas is ridiculous because we're not trying to erase one religion. We're trying to include others. Right. Make space for other. Yeah. Right. So there's yeah. there's roughly uh, the last number that I saw, and I, I need to verify this, but I didn't feel like searching through religious calendars. But there's roughly 27 different religious or cultural holidays that fall between Thanksgiving and the end of January. Yeah, that makes sense. not all of them are Christian. Right. So we get into this space where if we're going to be a genuinely pluralistic country, if we're going to actually practice freedom of religion. Mm. then we should make it so that our government does not endorse. Well, honestly, if these were iconography from an Islamic holiday, mm. you know exactly what would be happening. Yes, I remember because, you know, this this debate was so prominent when we were kids. I remember even having that realization as a kid and being mm. kind of taken aback by it and then kind of skeptical of what my church would say. Like, I remember thinking if we force Christian prayer in schools. What couldn't that just mean in eight years when we have a new president who might not be Christian? Couldn't he just force us to be doing a different kind of prayer? That doesn't feel great. Like almost that moment of realizing. And again, I'm speaking at this point as a kid who's a devout Christian at that point in that realization was a sort of like, oh, separation of church and state actually protects me as a Christian. Yeah. Which is not the way it's often framed. I it's don't, never framed. Never framed as a never protection that like you get to continue, you know, your faith practice actually in, in a free nation because of this law that also might do these things you don't like. But it's actually really protective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And well, going back to the moral panic language, right, we can take the exact same uh, moral panic outline and the exact same rhetoric about separation of church and state and apply it to the whole rhetoric surrounding prayer in schools. Mm -hmm. Prayer isn't banned from schools. Forced prayer, obligatory prayer right. and institution sponsored prayer mm -hmm. is not allowed because it forces kids into religiously compromising situations. Sure. But sure. that's not how it is. So we take a true story and you right. lie about it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah right. So this is sort of the theme that we get moving forward is we're going to take these establishment issues and we're going to lie about them a little bit, exaggerate them a lot with media exacerbation. And we're going to fuel it into this battle against us and mm -hmm. them. Yeah. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! Before we move on, um, I think we have a pretty nice flow. I want to add one more historical precedent for the war on Christmas. Okay. This goes back to 1959. Are you familiar with the John Birch Society? No. Okay. Man, I don't know a lot of what you're talking about today. The That's John okay. Birch Society, uh, there's a really great sequence of uh, episodes from a Straight White American Jesus where they talk on, on that podcast. They talk about the John Birch Society. They're a Christian propaganda group. Uh, somebody called them the 50s version of like Breitbart. I remember this now. I remember this now. Yeah. 
Yeah, it started in like the 1950s or something, right? 1950s up through about the early 70s. Yeah, I remember that episode. That is a good episode. Yeah. This is from their pamphlet, There Goes Christmas in Terabang. (laughs) Yeah, there's an in Terabang at the end of it. So I don't know, whatever. Uh, Notice the pattern, okay? One of the techniques now being applied by the Reds to weaken the pillar of religion in our country is the drive to take Christ out of Christmas, to denude the event of its religious meaning. Skipping down a little, the UN fanatics launched their assault on Christmas in 1958, but too late to get very far before the holiday was at hand. Sorry, before the holy day was at hand. They are already busy. However, at this very moment, on efforts to poison the 1959 Christmas season with their high-pressure propaganda. What they now want to put over on the American people is simply this. Department stores throughout the country are to utilize UN symbols and emblems as Christmas decorations. (laughs) Uh, So, like, it's the exact same thing. It's just, instead of the Jews, now it's the commies Mm -hmm. and the UN. I'll also point out that, like, I have to double check my linguistics here, but like my slip up there wasn't was was by accident, but wasn't out of no reason. Holiday and Holy Day. Like, there's a reason those two are connected. Mm -hmm. There's like a development of the language in the connection of those two ideas. A holiday is a holy. So, like, etymologically, you have this sort of ironic freak out over the word holiday Mm -hmm. even though it still you know recognizes these things as holy so i wanted to point that out that there's a litany of villains villainous others that have Mm -hmm. been uh the target of these war on christmas languages yeah especially in american context right like i feel like uk is like holiday means something else like you go on holiday yeah holiday in that term in those terms are like you on vacation right going to the beach which sounds a lot more fun than going to the mall at christmas time (laughs) so we're gonna take a quick break here and when we come back uh we're gonna discuss john gibson's book the war on christmas how the liberal plot to ban the sacred holiday is worse than you thought la 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 Welcome back. Uh, We are now talking about John Gibson's The War on Christmas. Without getting too much into John Gibson, uh, he is a Fox News pundit or was Uh, radio mostly. He did serve some time on. He has an interesting career just in the sense that he like spent some time working at MSN and then working at Fox. So really Mm. interesting, you know, considering how polarized that all is now. I wonder if that's not a legitimate career trajectory anymore probably not but he's he's a fox news guy and that really reveals uh another trend in the war on christmas that in its contemporary iteration it is a fabrication of fox news explit not right-wing media broadly not like no this originated with those o'reilly segments 
and was uh, propagated by folks like John Gibson and Tucker Carlson and, you know, uh, uh, Megyn Kelly. And so we're going to talk more about Fox News later on. But there's so much Fox News in this conversation. I just had like memory unlock when you said Megyn Kelly, her saying something about Santa being white. Yeah. Pin. Okay, sorry. Pin. It is. I'm so excited to talk it was about just that. like something I hadn't thought about in like five years. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden I just got this like. <laughs> yep. OK, absolutely. Sorry. I'm so excited to talk about that. My eyes like flew wide. I was like. <laughs> so, I mean, that's really all there is to say remarkable about John Gibson. The only other thing is I will say is in his like acknowledgments, uh, he acknowledges his son who helped him do all the interviews for this, which. I couldn't find a specific birth date for his son, but he got married in 1979, which means if his wife had their son the year they got married, at best, he's like 23 when the book comes out. Okay. I only say that to say he puts a lot of weight on the journalistic work his son does. Mm, Okay. To the point where there is not there's not a chapter that goes by without him mentioning his son doing some work, really. Okay. And what year is this? You said 2004. Thank you for that. Uh, Yes. So this is all happening in a very similar close window of time. Yes. So Riley is 04. Then this is 04, 05. And then the Sarah Palin book is later, right? Yeah, the Sarah Palin book, I believe, is 07. It's kind of congruent with one of her campaigns. Okay. I'm sorry, the, the Gibson book is 2005. So it's Five. the year okay. after so O'Reilly. Like in a year's time. Okay, yeah. got it. This book is basically eight chapters long, including an introduction and an epilogue. Or sorry, nine chapters. Uh, the seven middle chapters are seven cases throughout the U.S. in recent memory at the time. So everything from about... 2001 to 2003, 2004. They're all cases in which some element of Christmas was squelched by snowflakes. Not the good kind that Elvis sang about, but, you know, the bad kind. Got it. The primary villain is the ACLU. He is very intense with the ACLU uh, and and, and associated groups. Mm -hmm. That said... The language he uses throughout the book is intense. It is the guy knows how to paint a picture in the most OK boomer way possible. So his introduction is seven pages. He spends almost four discussing an image on a postcard. (laughs) I remember you saying that. (laughs) Yeah, his his point in that section of the introduction is to say that the town that he grew up in back in the day as depicted on this postcard, had a grandiose Main Street Christmas display. Mm. Lights everywhere, giant tree. It was a big event. Santa Claus is everywhere. And so the picture on this postcard depicts Christmas in his town when he was growing up. He ends this to say this wouldn't be possible today. Well, you know, the town actually still does have their ceremonies and allows their like he literally undercuts himself in the introduction by saying this also happens. But you wouldn't be able to do it today. How many sources do you think this journalist, reporter journalist, cites in this roughly 180 page book? This is a trick question because I feel like you could say like it's 200 sources and they're all other Fox News articles (laughs) or it's some really abysmal low number. I'm going to go with the latter. Let's do a biblical number seven. Cool. You are incorrect. It is zero. Oh, it's zero. 
I will say that he mentions a lot of discussions, like proper interviews, either he or his son had with the people in the book. And he mentions a lot of like news articles, not properly by like who wrote them or whatever, but like so and so published an article about it, that kind of thing. Hmm. But there I cannot find any record of the interviews or the news articles for I only looked at three of them, but for three out of the seven, I can't find any record of these things happening online at all. I looked in the Wayback Machine. I looked at like for the entire Internet at the time. I looked through the ACLU's case files and 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 uh, uh, what's it called? Like activism reports and things like that. None of it. The closest thing I got is one instance. There was one article by a local newspaper in the Oklahoma story that he gives about Christians protesting the thing that he said happened. Mm. So not about the thing. There isn't an article about the thing happening. There's an article about Christians getting outraged. Okay. Oh, okay. So about the reaction rather than the event itself. Exactly. There isn't really any like noteworthy sense of these cases. And this isn't entirely unique to Gibson's book. It's a feature of many of these like airport nonfiction books. You know, he's the source. The author positions themselves as the expert, tells us why we trust him. And he's great at whatever that is. And then he makes the the claim. So this isn't, again, unique to Gibson, but it is like something unique to poorly written nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Because, okay. again, the point of this is not to make any substantive claim about trends in our cultural like ideology or cultural uh, sphere. Uh, it's just to trigger outrage. Mm-hmm. It's explicitly made. It. And, and we're going to see sort of how he does that throughout. I want to start with a paragraph of his from the introduction so today i just dropped in a shot of this page here uh could you please read starting with the highlighted text you know i was thinking about um a trend in some of our episodes across our last six episodes have been maybe not all but a good number of them have been the like here is a story of something that happened and it's usually like a conversation between folks and there's no real way to fact check it. So we're often left in the episodes going, sure, maybe, I don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the weird thing about this is that there should be confirmation of these types of things, right? Like, yeah. 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 You point out a very important qualification. When I say I'm looking for when I fact check, I'm not necessarily looking for other people to say that John Gibson was correct. Sure. I'm just looking for someone other than John Gibson to say it happened. Yeah. Yeah. OK. You know, that, that idea of corroboration, there should be sort of a a uh, media trail for these things. Mm-hmm. And that's generally good practice. And that's what fact checkers do is look for some sort of validation or corroboration. Yeah. Even if somebody said, yeah, this thing happened, it's not like that, but yet, ha- like, I, okay, fine. At least the thing happened. Right, right. Yeah. I we don't even if, see that. I wonder if it's something about when it was published and the sort of. Anyway, okay. So, um, well, no, I think that's an important caveat. And, and like, let's be, you know, uh, uh, responsible academics and say the internet's just blossoming at this point. 2005, it's like 
we are we even in really yet the era of the like the fact checking i don't know i don't even think we're really in that area we're still getting the like our parents telling us be careful about what you read on the internet because who knows and there's no way to find out right or and we're also not sure assuming that a lot of these things were local events we're not sure yet how many of them would have had an online presence like these towns the you Mm -hmm. know like that type of stuff yeah yeah like in the in the contemporary age like a local news outlet puts on and there and fox news and msn have people trolling these local sites to find exactly this to trigger this kind of outrage so this is really just a model of what they do now it's just like the low-tech version of it totally sure okay so this is what he says often the first shots of the battle are fired in schools full stop that's tone deaf even for 05 yeah many schools have either already changed christmas trees into friendship trees or giving trees or holiday trees or are considering it almost everywhere a school district is limiting what christmas carols kids can sing or hear or a district is considering it. Almost everywhere, a school district has decided that kids cannot have Christmas parties, but instead must have winter parties. Almost everywhere, school administrators have either disinvited Santa or giving him sidelong glances of suspicion. And in some schools, the winter theme must be so completely universal that even the colors red and green are forbidden. This is one of those sentences that like you read in somebody's like unhinged social media rant (laughs) poor santa disinvited i want to show a couple things in this paragraph that are indicative of the text itself okay the first is obviously hearkening back to that moral panic model right taking something that's probably true and lying about it you know exacerbating it um over-reporting it, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The second is, notice the devolution of things that are being warned about here. Mm -hmm. Renaming Christmas trees. Not getting rid of Christmas trees. Just renaming them. Right. Second, the Christmas songs that people can hear or sing. Third, Christmas parties being renamed. Winter parties. And then Santa maybe being around or not. That's a little confusing to me because it's like, why do Christians even care about Santa? I have a theory about that. We will get there when we get to the Santa chapter. Yeah, whatever. I don't get the loyalty to Santa thing. I love Santa. I think I I love Santa, but I don't understand why Christians would be mad about Santa not being in schools. That seems we have to have a conversation about you loving Santa. I don't that's that's very (laughs) interesting to me, Um, but we're going to put a pin in that. Uh, And then the last is colors. Okay, so. If we accept the premise that we know is untrue based on what we've seen so far, that the war on Christmas is an attempt to remove Christendom from the public sphere. What the fuck do colors have to do with it? Yeah. Or Santa. That's what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. Like we're getting to the point where like, okay, you want to get the argument keeping Christ in Christmas. Right. Sure. Fine. I can understand the, the rhetorical moves you're making. But the colors? Yeah. Santa? Those aren't explicitly religious iconography. And what's weird is that the red and green, the Santa, the gifts, and all of that, those are already distortions of the original Christmas message. So now you're getting upset at the further distortion of the distortion that isn't your Christian message. 
There's nothing yeah. about Jesus and Santa and trees and gifts and parties. And yet you are now saying that th- like these things are like you're conflating these things when I'm sure there was an era where people would have said this is those things that you're upset are being removed from schools are the distortion in the first place. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think I think you said it so well. We'll just stop the episode here. But <laughs> you said it really well. There's this distortion that's already in place and you're defending the distortion. Which is why I said at the beginning, it's so ironic that the war on Christmas claims to be about commodification or commercialization of the holiday, because we're well beyond that point. Way beyond, way beyond. Like the examples of the nativity scene, that makes a little more sense in my brain, like how you got there, right? Mm Because it's like, oh, it's the erasure of the biblical story, which is the foundation of Christmas. But when we start getting into things like Christians having a beef with like the removal of colors and trees and Santa and gifts, I'm like, You've already lost your you've already lost the root of your like story, you know, (laughs) it does feel very much like a losing the thread of the argument here. Yeah. 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 Um, Too late to the party. You know, you're too late for this. Like you should have been protesting the tree, actually, probably, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Protest the tree, protest the. Uh, you know, uh, what is it in the 40s when Coca-Cola, you know, suits up Santa? Yeah. Yeah. Like, wh- why aren't we complaining about that? These are all huge distractions from yeah. the cr- Christian Christmas message. Right. But now you're mad that we're getting rid of the distraction. And if you really want to, like, complain about Christmas being commercialized and a problematic uh, celebration that's distracting from the birth of Christ, just follow the Orthodox calendar and celebrate the birth of Christ in January when when Orthodox churches do that. Right, right. Like the Christian Christmas holiday is so commercialized and so much beyond that it's barely a religious holiday anymore. But if you want to keep it that way, if you want to keep it as having some religious ritual, that's mm-hmm. fine. That's fine too. Like no one's not letting you do that. Right. Right. Yeah. It's just it feels like a misdirected critique. But yeah. Um, And the last thing I want to point out about this paragraph, again, that's indicative of the whole book is. Notice he added two times or are considering it. Right. Right. And how no wonder there's no citations, you know, right now we're getting into real fluffy like territory. Yeah, I hear I hear a lot of like my uh, conservative uh or libertarian family and friends going like thought crimes they're trying to get you for thought crimes just thinking the wrong thing okay well you're claiming that people are thinking about doing this thing with zero evidence and you want to harangue them for it Mm, yeah i've never heard that phrase but oh it's a it's a sci-fi phrase too yeah ho 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 merry christmas We're not going to go through every chapter of this book because honestly, it is pointless to do so. Yeah. What we are going to do instead is look at a few of the instances in this book, see how Gibson handles them, and in doing so, sets the model for what comes after. Okay. And then we're going to pivot to other instances over the past like 20 years and see how the idea of the war on Christmas has evolved. So, The first chapter in Gibson's book 
he does this thing throughout the uh, book where he names the chapter something pithy um, from the investigation that he does, quote unquote investigation, uh, and then the location. So chapter one is Covington, Georgia, quote, we couldn't call it Christmas. It's literally about a school board changing the Christmas break to a holiday break. Mm. That is it. So he spends quite a long amount of time discussing how uh, the ACLU purportedly sent a letter and said, hey, uh, Christmas is not inclusive. Say winter. Mm -hmm. And the school board did but only because they felt pressured and threatened. There's an interesting argument laid out by um, not an ACLU lawyer, but somebody connected with the um, National School Board Association, Tom Hutton. I'm going to quote Hutton here. When schools observe religious holidays by closing school, the, the legally accepted reason they're doing it is the kids won't be there anyway. The same reasoning applies when the example is a holiday for Ramadan in largely Muslim Dearborn, Michigan, which has seen a dramatic rise in the population of Arab Muslims in the last two decades. So it's not that we're forcing Islam on anybody in Dearborn, Michigan, it's that the kids aren't going to be there. And the same with Christmas. We close the school on Christmas because the kids aren't going to be there. Seems reasonable. The circular logical logic of that is hilarious to me. We're legally closing the school because the kids won't be there. Why won't the kids be there? Because we're closing the school. (laughs) Right. Like, the very idea that the self-sustainability of the sacredness of the holiday in the imaginations of people who even celebrate or don't celebrate Mm. is kind of mind-boggling to me. Uh, there's a passage in here where he's like a school is thinking of getting rid of Thanksgiving because who other than God are we giving thanks to? What? No one thinks that. Oh, my God. Like. It's such a weird th- and and I think the most tragic part of this chapter where this is not one we're going to go in depth and I just wanted to give that weird circular logic. I think the tragedy of that chapter is the school board. Um, the uh, the president of the school board or whatever died tragically between when this happened and when Gibson started investigating oh. and just died in a motorcycle accident. But he interviewed the guy's wife and she's like, I think he would be appalled at what's happening. And it's like, it's weird that you're doing this whole like he was a veteran and he died in a motorcycle accident like a hometown. Good boy. Good old boy. And. Now we want to use his memory to push this agenda forward. Yeah. It feels icky. It also sets up a pattern that most of the people who like make these decisions are like just hometown blue collar veterans who are being bullied by ACLU elites Mm. into making decisions because they're afraid of being harassed. Which again... Might happen sometimes. Yeah. But like you said, the basis of moral panic is that inflation of an occurrence, right? And that or the mm-hmm. like universality of an occurrence of a singular occurrence, you know. Right. 
I don't doubt that there are like, you know, sort of um, the left has its own forms of moral panic that then sometimes exploit maybe small people in small places. And it's like, this did not need to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's like we have, you know, in the in the war on Christmas thing, especially and anything religious, really, there is just this so such a pervasive narrative that there is a hunt. Right. For the sacred and there is a hunt for the humble man who's just doing his sacred thing and mm-hmm. a very appealing narrative but it is a very appealing narrative um it is a frustratingly appealing narrative because again going back to your other point about moral panic there's like a clear enemy mm-hmm. to be established so right and that needs to be the aclu the elites we're also going to notice a pattern like he said in that paragraph it's schools. Yeah. By and large, this is happening in schools. Public schools. Yeah. All right. So the second one is Mustang, Oklahoma. Nativity scene. Bad. Kwanzaa and Hanukkah. Good. That's real. And it's such an icky title. <laughs> so the claim in this chapter is that the school district in Mustang, Oklahoma, received uh threats, that's kind of the language he uses, uh, from the ACLU and its, quote, litigious cohorts. Okay. That for the school to remove Silent Night from their Christmas Christmas pageant. Okay. The actual story, as best as I could find, and this is the only one of the chapters that I researched where I found even a single article. So again, literally a single article in the Oklahoman like a local newspaper um, that was about the protests. Okay. The superintendent felt like he didn't want to put himself in a bad situation. So he removed silent night from the pageant, which was still called a Christmas pageant. Okay. But then featured iconography from multiple religions, including Christmas trees and snowmen and the colors red and green. They just literally took out a religiously, an explicitly religious song. Yeah. Quoting from Gibson here, quote, neither the ACLU or any of its litigious cohorts had either filed suit or threatened a lawsuit. Uh, What? Yep. So, okay. what's the problem then? Right. The superintendent was worried about it being a problem. And wanted to be inclusive and didn't want parents in an uproar. Mm -hmm. So he removed it of his own volition. Again, quoting from Gibson, Superintendent Springer got over 2000 emails. The phone switchboard. It's really weird to hear email and switchboard at the same time. (laughs) uh, Got over 2000 emails. The phone switchboard at the office flooded with protest calls. Springer was ridiculed and pilloried in the media nationwide. Again, Mm -hmm. I found one article. As talk radio picked up the story and spent days debating whether Carl Springer was Satan himself or just one of his misbegotten sons. (laughs) These are conservative and religious people getting mad that he removed it, not liberals and the ACLU. Do you see where the pattern is entirely constructed and inverted in this sequence? Yeah. 
That's really interesting. It's almost like in these types of books, and I can't think of another title that does this, but I feel I know I've encountered it in this kind of like Christian literature. They pile on story after story after story, story, much of which is anecdotal or unsighted. And eventually it be kind of just morphs into this one like large, <laughs> like yeah. scary narrative. But it, they start to lose their rigor. They start to lose their like authenticity. They start to lose their like, you know, a- any credibility. And because it's just self-help books do it too. Mm-hmm. I think a little bit like the laying it on over and over and over again, these like really highly specific stories that probably a much more nuance maybe didn't even happen. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? This sort Absolutely. Of yeah, it's, yeah. 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 So I, the way I would word that if I were trying to be really high handed about it yeah, is that yeah. it's a dedication to a mythical narrative above the plot or accuracy of the instance. Sure. sure. It doesn't matter that this specific instance happened ever. It's that this kind of thing may have happened and I don't like it. Right. And you are constructing a machine that doesn't really care about the individual parts. Its goal is just to produce one particular story. If we can draw a comparison that I'm sure somebody's going to add me about Omar. Right. It's about fitting the form. Right. Not a good plot. It's about selling the american utopianism that is small town belief and faith connected with like getting rid of city ideology or you know where those elites are you know and getting back to the roots totally yep and similar in the sense of they crank out so much material and it's really just and people admit it like this is i'm not like attacking anyone your people and people who watch hallmark movies are aware of its like absurdity, you yeah. know, um, it's story after story after story. I think rom-coms do it a little bit too. Oh, for sure. You know? Anytime we talk about commercialization or commodification of a thing, it's those things approaching the form as yeah. opposed to the actual thing, right? It's again, to be a high handed academic about it. This is Baudrillard, right? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. B- Baudrillard has this idea of the simulacrum, right? That, Capitalism specifically pushes things away from what they actually represent to a a twisted mechanical version of them. Mm -hmm. Right. Is there a better way to say to summarize Baudrillard? Because I'm I'm a little I haven't. I think that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we see in the rest of this chapter is uh, talking to like some experts and there's actually some genuinely like decent advice from this guy um dr haynes who wrote a book called finding common ground a guide to religious liberty in public schools i i didn't read the book i didn't look into him very much but i kind of like some of the stuff that he's saying basically his practice is teach not practice the religion Hmm. which i can get to that like okay sure I think in public schools, you're still walking a really tricky line that shouldn't really be fuddled with. Yeah. You know, there's this weird uh, situation where Springer, the superintendent, he's depicted as this pathetic tool who deserved the hellstorm that he got and also a poor victim of the ACLU bullying him, which they didn't do. 
by Gibson's own admission. Right. <laughs> so here's this moment where somebody made a decision out of a desire to either be more inclusive or to not make waves. Hmm. But people came at him for it. Yeah. And this goes to another uh, statistic that I saw recently uh, as I was reviewing this um, that said that folks who watch Fox News, a religious folks who watch Fox News are at least 10 to 20 percent more likely to believe that there is a war on Christians and Christmas than a religious folks who don't. Mm. And this is like conservative aligning a religious folks. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. It's really interesting that there's this like, again, machine that accomplishes a particular goal regardless of any like rigor. Yeah. Okay. Uh, chapter three is Baldwin, Kansas. Santa gets bounced because it's discovered he's a Christian. We've looked at a few of these cases so far. <sighs> What do you think is actually what happened here, according to Gibson? Because, again, this is another one. Couldn't really find much corroboration. I really don't know, because I'm confused by the idea of Santa being a Christian. What is that? What? Okay, so they're saying he was he was outed, not outed. They mean fired. They mean fired. fired. (laughs) He was outed. He was fired because. Oh, my gosh. Now we have to write gay Santa. Right. Because it was exposed that he is a he's a Christian, like individually, Santa himself, not Santa proper. Okay. So, so it's uh, like a Christian concept. The story is yeah, that God somebody is Santa, was playing right? Santa at a school. A clergyman was playing Santa at a school. OK. And according to students at this school said, quote, if you believe in Jesus, Santa will bring you presents. If you believe in Jesus, Santa Santa will bring you presents. Okay, that's a problem. Like flat out, that is a problem. Yeah, there's some controversy as to whether that's what he actually said or not. Okay, a couple of the kids in the school said he said that. Okay, he said he didn't say that, and the guy that hired him said he didn't say that. Okay, so he said she said it's he said she said. One of the members of the school board, her last name is Cohen though she said she's not Jewish, said, could you imagine if I was Jewish? Like, I would have a problem with this. I'm not Christian, but I'm also not Jewish. I don't want my kids, like, conflating Santa and that mythology mm-hmm. with belief in Christ. Yeah. Uh, he, the, the Santa who was fired, um, and again, he wasn't fired, they just said, don't proselytize. <laughs> and then when he said, he said, wow, well, if and I'm quoting here, if that in any way can be proselytizing, I I certainly do apologize. Oh, that's like, nice. I mean, OK, that's nice. It's also like you're kind of playing dumb here. Yeah. Anyway, he also said and admitted to saying this. If we didn't celebrate Jesus's birthday, you and all your teachers would probably be in school for the next two weeks instead of getting ready to go out and spend a holiday that's a little manipulative but yeah that's manipulative too and again it's not even it's not even necessarily straight proselytizing it's the state the government endorsing someone who is telling kids who just want to not be in school and get gifts that if it wasn't for jesus they wouldn't get gifts 
and they wouldn't get out of school. Right. Like, that's problematic. It's not even that it's like, it's not hateful. Nobody's feeling like they're offended. But no, you're you're putting my kids in a religiously compromising situation. Yeah. And I don't know. I'm having a little bit of like, I'm feeling a little confused because I'm thinking back to my upbringing and the fact that my family was the minority for letting us believe in Santa. Yep. So in my experience, Christians didn't really want anything to do with Santa, let alone using Santa as like a weird witnessing. I mean, this was never on. This is I don't know. This is very strange to me. This one idea of being upset, Christians being upset of the removal of Santa, the Christians in my life would not have given a shit. I don't think, I don't think, I don't think they didn't like Santa. And then two, this idea that there's a connection between Jesus and Santa, if anything, I think in our discourse, it was like, let's not conflate these things because there's risk in doing that, which is a whole other conversation. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So this weird like defensiveness of Santa, I'm like, this is a different subset of Christians. I don't know. It is. It's, It's very fascinating because I distinctly remember families saying in my Christian circle that they didn't want to give their kids the idea of Santa because at some point they'd have to say, well, this isn't real. That, and yes, if yes, I've that made them that. believe this thing is real, that isn't, what else are they going to start to question? Like their faith in Jesus. Which is so like, oh my God, you're like really not seeing it. Like that is. Yeah. That's like the that's that Facebook group. You're so close to seeing it, but you missed it or or whatever. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, yeah. That was that was not as common in my in my culture. Um, I almost find that more interesting, you know, because mm-hmm. of all what's being missed there. Right. Yeah. But what was way more common was actually going back to my original point that Santa was a distortion of the Christian narrative. Yes. And he was a distraction. And he perpetuated things like consumerism and not thinking about family and not thinking about God and like all of that. Um, So a rejection of him was actually an attempt to get back to a more authentic Christian narrative, Christmas Christian narrative. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think this is like kind of rattling around in my in like a like it's it's weird to me that like there are Christians who would see Santa, the removal of Santa or whatever, as somehow connected to a Christian Christmas, Mm -hmm. because in my experience, that just was not the case. So and and here's what I find really interesting about this. And after looking at a bunch of these moral panic takes on Santa, I think I found the logic behind this. Well, please share. So if you believe that eradicating Christmas is an attempt to remove Christendom, to remove Christ and religiosity from the public sphere. Yeah. And you think that that's from secularization and a lack of faith, then Santa, belief in Santa, faith in Santa becomes a surrogate or a gateway drug to Jesus. So if you remove, OK, well, we're not allowing Santa. Oh, you're not allowing faith in anything. You're trying to make these kids too rational and not giving them space to believe. Oh. Because I also knew Christians who would use Santa as um I remember a friend of mine saying Santa was like training wheels for Jesus. Like if you can believe in magic. Oh my God. Yeah. If you can believe in magic and Santa, then eventually you can have enough faith to believe in Jesus. Like that kind of thing. Again, all of what is missed there is so funny. So funny. Like if you can believe in this fake thing, maybe you can believe in this thing that's totally real. (laughs) I swear. 
like yeah, that, that line I think is totally missed, but I, I genuinely think that that's the pipeline. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say this because earlier when you were talking, I was trying to figure out like, so what do Christians get from these like traditional holiday things, Christmas, <laughs> Christmas things, not things, Christmas things. Yeah. And I was trying to put myself in that position and I was thinking, is it a way to sort of like, and you know, Christians love thinking this too, that it's like these tiny things will like lure people in to interest in Christianity. So for instance, like going back to the WWJD bracelet, when we were talking about how people don't really ask, like, why are you wearing this bracelet? Or like, mm-hmm. why are you wearing this shirt? I think most people, even secular folks who say Christmas, aren't going to like sit down one day and be like, Christmas, Christ. I should really reach out to a Christian in my life about Christ and see what that's all about. That's the world that they live. They construct as like, this is, this is something that happens all the time. So is that what this is all rooted in is like a, there's still this like faint connection to religiosity and eventually it will lead people there. And if we eliminate it altogether, the threat is gone and now there's nothing. I genuinely think that there's a subset of folks who that is true for yeah not all of course but yeah, yeah. yeah no. <laughs> hashtag not all christians <laughs> no I, I think that there's a subset of people that's for i also believe that we just coming back to if you make sure that christmas represents everything you are for and getting rid of that means getting rid of all those things like that secularization that bill o'reilly puts up mm-hmm. Uh, as the enemy, I, I think it's just that. I think it's, oh, well, they're trying to get rid of Santa. What else are they going to get rid of? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's exhausting. I get it. I guess um, I get it. He also, the, the, this Santa who was a clergyman also said, I'm just baffled that anyone could construe Christmas as, as anything other than the birth of Christ. It's literally so easy to do. <laughs> um, they're also, he also takes a long time in this chapter to shit on people who complained being anonymous, right? Like the ACLU says, Hey, we got some complaints from Uh, people. And he's like, well, you know what? Why don't they want to tell us who it is? I mean, all we want to do is know exactly who they are so we can confront them in person. Oh, okay. Yeah. But like you're listing this litany of people who really want to know who complained so that you can what ostracize them. Well, I guess they got their wish because like now in today's like Twitter world, it's like everybody's very public about the things they want canceled or whatever, you know? So, yeah, Um, I'm going to read from Cohen, who's one of the people who she said she did not complain to the ACLU or anything like that. But she's sort of defending the like taking a step back and not including uh, and, and, and not including a Santa that does this sort of thing. She says. He was sneaky. He took advantage of his access to children to preach, and that simply cannot be allowed. Okay. Which is, I mean, I agree. Yeah, sure. My daughter brought home something Christmas-related nearly every day during the month of December. How would I have felt if we were Jewish? Cohen wrote, summarizing her Christmas from hell. The fourth, fifth, and sixth grade musical in December is usually connected. One of our new professors at Baker University in 2003, who was Jewish, had his daughter in sixth sixth grade that year. How did she feel about having to practice Christmas songs every day for weeks on end? Most schools do a mix of songs, including non-Christmas ones, to be fair to all children. Mm. 
And like later on, the person is like he talks about uh, censoring, which is really interesting, like that idea of censorship of books, because there was a bunch of supposedly I looked this up and I didn't see anything in the American Library Association who usually keeps track of these kinds of things. And I also checked the Wikipedia sort uh, sites for this book. So um, we all fall down by Cormier. Supposedly, there's a scene in the book where uh, a, a person is raped. Mm. And it was something that the school was. Now, it says the school district. It did not give an age group, but it said they were reading it together. And some conservative folks or Christian folks were saying, hey, we don't want this read because rape. Mm-hmm. And literally, literally, Gibson goes, wow, they don't want us talking about Christmas, but they want children to witness a rape scene. OK, a- apples and oranges, but right, exactly. Apples and oranges. And uh, what's the context for this? Like, give me the again, back to the Supreme Court decision of the separation of these things. What is the context? Mm-hmm. I actually think that this instance might be one that doesn't fall under that. Uh, not this instance, I'm sorry, the Silent Night one might be an instance where like it doesn't fall under that. But anyway, yeah. all right. For the sake of speed, I'm just going to talk about one last one. Mm-hmm. Chapter four is called Plano, Texas, a red and green free zone. <laughs> it's not about it's not about the colors. It's that everybody was giving out goodie bags to each other like it was everybody like all the students put together goodie bags for other students okay like to do like a communal gift giving thing and one kid was handing out uh candy cane shaped pens with tracts attached to it explaining how the significance of the candy cane is a j for jesus and a shepherd's crook for how he's the shepherd of our lives got it and so somebody took it home and said hey uh don't proselytize on school grounds. Everything else is fine. Just take out the tract. And he acts like they cut this child's head off and carried around on a spike. Uh, Chapter five, though, uh, again, the last the last one that I'm going to go in depth on is set in Eugene, Oregon. It's just really about Christmas trees. And I'm not going to talk about the whole thing, but I just want to give you this one a paragraph to read so you can sort of see what's going on there. So you can read this paragraph for me that I just dropped into our document. Okay. It started with the demise of the timber industry worker and the culture that went with the physical labor in Eugene. At the high watermark of Eugene's timber industry, when the 150 sawmills and plywood plants belch steam and smoke and employ thousands of people in the Lane County, Oregon, The university had little power to insist on change among the lumber barons or their workers. Lumber was the dominant culture. Time solved that problem. Two generations of activists from the environmental program of the law school, the University of Oregon, and the job-killing efficiencies of modern wood processing technologies vastly reduced the number of mills to less than a dozen and cut the employment rolls to a tenth of what they once were. The industry still produces the same amount of plywood as ever, and cuts more timber than anywhere else in the timber-rich Pacific Northwest, but its influence in the community has waned in the same proportion as the number of lost workers. So I I show this to you not because it's particularly remarkable, Uh but because it ties the war on Christmas panic to 
other conservative talking points. Mm -hmm. The elites in universities and schools, environmental activists getting in the way of good old fashioned progress and laborers, blue collar laborers being put out of work by automation. Got it. In tech. All of that is tangled up in this weird panic over uh, uh, advertisements for Christmas trees. And this is in his book. In his book. That is in his book. The final chapter uh, in the book um, is a list of uh, (laughs) Christian lawyers. The chapter is called Onward Christian Lawyers. Uh, and it's just a list of people who are like bringing lawsuits in the opposite direction. The funny Got thing it. is that he never really talks about the fact that the ACLU stands up for Christians all the time. Mm-hmm. Like the ACLU would say, as long as you're not breaking laws, you should be allowed to do whatever you want. In fact, and there's a, a case I came across around the same time as all of this panic. Um, I believe it was like 2007 in Hawaii, where the city council put out a menorah and a Star of David, but not a Christmas tree. And the ACLU sent one of its letters and advocated to include a Christmas tree. Mm. So like, and and that's not an isolated incident. And it's an example, though. You know, like this kind of thing happens. Gibson's book is very explicitly about stirring up panic, stirring Mm. up a moral or cultural panic. Okay, we're going to take one more break, and then we're going to come back for a quick overview of some other specific instances where the war on Christmas was invoked. And I want to see if we can apply Gibson's model and the Some More News uh, structure to understand what's going on in these moments. Sound good? Yep. start with a story that's not particularly remarkable in the history of uh, war on Christmas panics, except for the fact that it comes from my hometown. Aw, okay. So in 1957 in Ossining, New York, in 1957 in Ossining, New York, uh, the nativity scene was put on the school, on the school grounds. Just a nativity scene. No other uh, holiday or religious iconography. Okay. And so from the um, court documents, I'm going to quote here, movements assert that, quote, the psychological and sociological effects of defendant's acts is to indicate clearly in the minds of the child a preference by the public school authorities of their Christian religion over other religions and acceptance and endorsement as truth of the dogma of the Christian religion and a corresponding rejection of other religions, end quote. The foregoing plaintiffs allege is violative of their constitutionally guaranteed right of freedom of religion. Basically, this is a precursor to the 1987 Supreme Court case where it's context matters. Okay. It is also another uh, like Jewish antagonism moment, right? Not actually that it's antagonism on the part of the Jewish organization, but that it is a Jewish organization who is bringing this forward. Mm, okay. When I say I want to talk about instances in our lifetime, though, 
of this war on Christmas. Is there anything that comes to mind? You mentioned one earlier, um, but are there any specific instances that come to mind? In my own life where I've observed this occur? Yeah, in the news, it doesn't need to be like walking around you find this, but in the <laughs> news, because we know that first doesn't happen. <laughs> I was going to say. Um... So when we were kids in 2005, Mm -hmm. Uh, there was a nationwide boycott of the Federated Department Stores. Interesting. After a committee decided to have employees say happy holidays in order to be more inclusive and to sell more product. Okay. Um, This was funded, started by uh, Bill O'Reilly. Okay. Right. He endorsed this like explicitly. Like if you go to the website for the the committee to save Merry Christmas. Okay, this does sound familiar. Mm -hmm. This does sound familiar. And you know what it sort of brings up for me? I don't know if it's this exact same era, but there was definitely a controversy, a huge controversy about Starbucks cups. We're going to. Yep. It's funny how a few of the things you've been saying, like lay dormant in my brain. And then all of a sudden, like some trigger happened. But I'm Mm -hmm. like picturing the red Starbucks cups and like people talking about not going to Starbucks. Absolutely. So a lot of these panics from our generation are tethered directly to uh, consumer culture or economy. Yeah. 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 Economics. So the boycott of the big box stores. I mean, legitimately the committee that decided to have them was one dude one dude was like hey you know we have um we probably sell to people that aren't christian so what if we just said happy holidays to make them feel more comfortable and buy more stuff right yeah if i if i say if my sign says happy holidays more people are going to buy it than if it says merry christmas but allegedly yeah yeah like theoretically yeah 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 I mean, I don't know if it would actually stop someone, but right. Uh, I don't think it would forget that people forget, especially conservatives forget that being inclusive and diverse and all that stuff, they view it as like a liberal agenda. It's also just a capitalist tool. Thank you so much for saying self-serving. It gets you money. It gets you attention. This idea that like these people have this like really nuanced, deep, liberal, like philosophical ideology that they're trying to impose on all of us. They just a lot of them just want to make more money, you know, and we could all unite on that. <laughs> we could all unite. I was just going to say, do you know who else hates phony corporate pride month shit? Queer right. folks. Most of them. Yes. Most. Most. Yeah. Like, again, hashtag not all of anybody. <laughs> right. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Uh, so, yeah, since you mentioned the Starbucks thing, we'll skip forward to that because that's another economic thing. So this happened in 2015. Oh, wow. That's way more recent than I realized. Yeah. That's weird. So I worked for Starbucks around this time. Like, I actually <laughs> stopped working at Starbucks uh, in 2015. Actually, yeah, about 2015. 2014, 2015. So this is right around when I stopped working. But Starbucks has always had holiday-themed cups. In fact, since 1997. Okay. Like red and green. Yep. Yep. Your absolutely. Basic shit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, if you ever worked at Starbucks, you know what Red Cup Day is. Red Cup Day is like fucking D-Day for baristas. 
Oh, it, because it's it's the the holiday changeover, right? So it's on top of now we have the holiday drinks. It's now we have to switch out all the like display stuff. We have mm. to put out all the new holiday um, uh, food and uh, merchandise and stuff like that. It's a lot. In 2015, though, Starbucks went with a minimalist design. And it was by and large viewed as an example of, quote, Christian cleansing. That's actually what it was called by some people. So, Debbie, I actually have a picture of Starbucks cups. Okay. I just dropped it into our board. This is every Starbucks cup from 2009 to 2015. Oh, interesting. Would you like (gasps) to describe for our listeners... Anything you happen to see here. Yeah, I'm taking it all in. Um, okay, so podcasting is not a visual medium, unfortunately. It really is not. No. Um, so by 2015, no one has whipped topping anymore, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All of these have all of these pictures have whipped cream or oh, yeah, like culture is, yeah, except for 2015. There's and also actually now that I'm looking at it, it's like Everybody got the super highly caloric fancy drinks. And then by 2015, we're just doing black coffee. Like it's just plain <laughs> black coffee. What they don't show you is that the 2016 holiday cup is just an IV. Diet industry really did its uh really did its number <laughs> that year. Um yeah, okay. So the first one says hope. The next one, this is gonna be obnoxious if I describe each one, but it like the cups become more simple, I guess. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Start with so the first one I see has hope written on an ornament, and then it goes to like Santa, then sledding, then snow, then just like red with some like pretty design, then almost all red, and then 2015, we're at the you get black coffee in a red cup. Right. Exactly. There's two interesting narratives here. The first is like you're complaining about secularism. This is just capitalism. Yeah. This is like capitalism is just washing away the uniqueness the colorfulness of it there are studies that show that as we've progressed in capitalism there are fewer color options for cars fewer color options for properties for painting for for all these things yeah it's like that um that funny meme that's like and you know as a vegetarian i love this like capitalism breeds innovation and then it just has like 50 chicken sandwiches you know There's a there's a meme I was going to send you and uh, maybe pop it up on our social media, but it's capitalism breeds innovation. And then it's like 20 Hallmark movie covers that are all colored exactly the same. Yes. The guy's yeah. wearing green. She's wearing red. They all look the exact same. It's like I cannot tell these white people apart. But going back to your original claim that the purpose of the that is the purpose of the Hallmark movies. Yes, absolutely. But but that's the point. And, and at this age of capitalism, it's, it's just simplification and minimalism. It's yeah. weird you know, modernization of of the capitalist impulse. The other thing is, is people view this as an erasure. But Teddy, genuinely answer this question. Do you see any Christian iconography, explicitly Christian iconography on any of these cups? No, I mean, it would be such a stretch, but hope is like, it's so vague, religious connotation, but otherwise, no. So then this gets back to the thing we were saying before about now Christians are saying the things that aren't even about the Christian message are somehow Christian, which is red and green and snowmen. Like, what does that have to do with Christ? 
if Starbucks every year put like a nativity scene on their cup and suddenly that disappeared in 2015, along with your creme brulee latte and you got black coffee instead, I would say maybe they have, you know, okay, I see what they're observing here. I don't see any sign of religion being erased here because I don't see any sign of religion. Beautifully put. Yeah. And that's why they had to fall back on the language of Christian cleansing. Right. right? Because it's it's not that they're secularizing it. It's that they're removing it Mm. because there's nothing to have secularized. Snowmen are not clergy members (laughs) like snowmen, aside from Frosty, don't have a salvific narrative. Phil Vischer taught us that if the vegetables can't have it, then the frozen water can't have it. Exactly. Exactly. And there's nothing spiritual about a $5 cup of coffee. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! There's two two more left that I want to discuss at any length. I will add a passing note to say that A number of years ago, during the Obama administration, the Affordable Care Act was voted for on Christmas Eve. And you can actually track a lot of Fox News talking points during that week where, wow, the Senate doesn't even think that Christmas is sacred anymore. They're going to vote. Wow, they're ruining Christmas. And it's like, okay, so this is exactly a policy you don't want enacted that conveniently lines up with your moral panic that you've set up. Also, these are the same people, and I kind of agree, who are like those people in White House are not paid are paid too much and don't work enough. And right. then when they work a holiday, people, everybody is suddenly defensive of them. It's like, make right. them work the holiday. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the nurses. Let's talk about, you know. Yeah. All right. So the two that I want to actually talk about here is the one that you mentioned earlier. In 2013, Aisha Harris wrote this lovely piece in Slate magazine about why Santa isn't black. Mm. The the thrust of her piece, I read it then, I reread it again for this. It's a good piece. It's not incredible, but it is a solid piece. The, the, the thesis was she would ask, oh, wait, why isn't Santa black, dad? I thought I thought he was black. You told me that Santa was black. And her dad has this lovely in Deering response, which is, you know, honey, Santa doesn't actually have a race. He changes based on the house that he's in. This way he gets to be for everybody because the magic of Santa and the magic of giving is for everybody. And I I just I love that. That is beautiful. Yes, Virginia, there is a black Santa. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. What's the problem? What do you, what is going to be the problem with this now? I mean, That's, you can seems perfectly, It seems perfectly lovely, nice, innocent. What what's what's the yeah. problem? So you can kind of pick your pick your poison here. It's either <laughs> racism or capitalism. OK, either and both suffice on Fox News. Megan Kelly decided oh, that he, she needed to rebut. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, by making sure all the kiddos out there knew that Santa was, in fact, white with a capital W. Right. She says, quote, you know, I've given her her due, but just because it makes you feel uncomfortable doesn't mean it has to change. Again, they don't hear this. Santa was white. And you know what? Jesus was a white man, too. Yeah, see, that that's where we really. This is where this comes from. It's like we have. There. He's a historical figure. That's a verifiable fact. 
as is Santa. I just want the kids to know that, that we're not debating Santa here, but that's what this other person is saying. Right. How do you revise it in the middle of the legacy in the story and change Santa from white to black? End quote. Obviously, there's a little bit of paraphrasing and silliness in there, but that like she literally said Santa's white, just like Jesus. They are both equally provable facts, which you don't hear it. It's it. Yeah. I mean, not to like, you know, belabor the point here, but it's like you are saying that Santa is white because he was a real historical figure and we need to honor that historical accuracy. And then you're also saying Jesus was white who is also a historical figure who was not white. <laughs> right. And even setting aside problems with talking about Jesus as a specifically historical figure, historically right. verifiable figure, aside from that controversy, none of that says that he would have been white. Yeah. And, um, you know, I remember this moment on that. So it must have really stuck with me because I remember her like looking at the camera and sort of like doing this, like very, I'm going to speak to the kids here. You know, it yep. was. Yeah, I remember that. It was almost endearing if it weren't so nightmarish. Yeah. Yeah. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. All right. The last thing I want to talk about here today is uh, Hallmark movies, actually. Um, American Hysteria put out a great episode about Hallmark and sort of the current controversy. But I think it's the most recent example of a war on Christmas type narrative, but there's something unique about it. Okay. So do you know anything about the current kind of panic surrounding Hallmark? Yes. It's from the full house lady. Candace Cameron. Yes. yes. She was like Hallmark's golden girl. Mm -hmm. Right. And then was like Hallmark is becoming too secular in terms of showcasing non-straight couples. So I'm jumping ship to make a point. And she's already been a controversial figure. So this wasn't like out of character, but it did kind of resurrect this whole thing that we see come up in different ways every single year, you know? Surrounding. Yeah. She's yeah. sort of like the stereotypical 30s white lady Christian. Yeah. Like influencer. Yeah, yeah. And says like controversial things and, yeah. you know, all of that. Yeah, it, it runs in the family. I don't know if you remember. I don't know if you remember slash no. Kirk Cameron is her brother. Oh, yeah, that's right. I saw them on a talk show together and I yeah. was like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Right. Exactly. So you sort of see there's a trend in that family. Yeah, yeah. Um, Candace Cameron, for those of you who don't know, played DJ Tanner on Full House and Fuller House. And she used sort of Hallmark's darling. This year, she's announced that she is leaving Hallmark in order to work with the Great American Family Network. With her, the old CEO of Hallmark is leaving to join the Great American Family Network, though he claims uh, that the timing is just coincidental. Okay. And I want you to read her response in an interview about leaving and what the Great American Family uh, channel is about so if you could read these two questions the first question in this interview is what does a great american family look like to you and this is candace cameron answering what does a great american family look like to you candace's response i love the country that i live in i'm grateful that i was born in this country i'm married to an immigrant my husband's russian and came here when he was 17 
He actually defected, couldn't go back for a long time until he got citizenship. Having a perspective, being married to someone who really worked his way up to where he is in this country and understanding the opportunities that this country gave him versus the country that he was born in is an incredible perspective. Not only grounding for me, but also eye-opening. There's so many things that we take for granted as Americans. And so, quote, great American family, end quote. I hope that family just represents all the good and right in our country and is a family that sticks together. Obviously, this is idealistic. I know this isn't everybody, but I hope that's what a great American family stands for. Love, kindness, patriotism. You can't get more explicit than that, right? right? It's the language we talked about earlier with this idea of family values are connected to the Christmas message, connected to patriotism and faith. These things are all so interlinked that you struggle to get away from it in any sense. There's the weird xenophobia about, well, you know, the other country. She's like, I'm married to an immigrant. And then the second question she gets asked is, so those are the themes that run through the network as well. So meaning the Great American Family Network. Okay. so she says her response to that is it absolutely is representing family. It's representing faith, which is a really big component. They're going to move much more forward in the faith contest. (laughs) I'm sorry. Move forward in the faith content. And having both, still having lots of movies, rom-coms and Christmas movies that don't involve faith, but also ones that really do. I think that that's going to be a big difference in the Great American Family Channel, as well as patriotic content. I love hearing stories about our veterans, about our servicemen and women, those reunions when they come home. We want to showcase all of that, all of the good and that's going on, all the good that's going on. And we want to tug on those heartstrings. I don't hear much that's different from Hallmark. Except except no queer folks, no same sex relationships, family, patriotism. I'm not sure what that looks like necessarily, but I certainly would never have characterized Hallmark as not patriotic. Right. Their their first like official like Hallmark Christmas move that sparked their commitment to the industry was literally about a soldier coming home from war because he got a Christmas card. That's what I was picturing. And the kind of glorification of like the small American small town feels very, I don't know, American. Yeah, American to me. It's American dream utopianism. Right. And then she said that faith, whatever that I mean. Yeah. I don't know. Is that Hallmark never claimed to be a Christian movie network? No, but they had faith in just about everything. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like you said, it's not there's no gay people in these movies. Right. That's it's it's really what it amounts to. Real difference. Yeah. So we see a lot of the hallmarks of the moral panic here. And Cameron's move to the Great American Family Network represents a slight shift in the rhetorical moves of the war on Christmas panic. So we still see the media frenzy. There's the othering language, the victim playing. But there seems to be far less active life. Mm. More importantly, it's not as reactionary. At least it's not being played as very reactionary. The media has been attempting to distance from reactive intentions. So Hallmark recently swapped CEOs, the new CEO being Wanya Lucas. And she has been very public and intentional about diversity, both racial diversity and gender diversity. But Candace Cameron and Bill Abbott, the old CEO, left just as the network was getting more pressure from advertisers and audiences to be more inclusive. 
Mm. And Abbott claims his timing was purely coincidental. Like he just wanted to leave. It was his time. Again, it's not positioned as, well, look at what the left is doing or look at what so-and-so is doing. And I'm reacting to that. It's just pushing the reaction away and leaning more towards getting closer to the. So I wonder if it's a shift in war on Christmas language. What do you think? Yeah, almost a rebranding, perhaps. Mm, Good point. I don't know. I'm not sure how intuitive these people are, but eventually I do think that there comes a point, whether conscious or unconscious, where you where you acknowledge like this is no longer working. Um, it's breeding more controversy than it's worth or it's it's not doing what we intended it to do. How can we like basically repackage this mm-hmm. and give it, you know, in a different way to the public? Whereas I think Fox News has still kept to their panic mongering. Yeah. But I but other Christian influence are starting to recognize the untapped positive market. Right. So if Fox News is the negative. By inducing the panic, they're seeing the positive side where if we play into whatever it is, then we can sort of call those shoppers. Yeah. And I think it's especially true with maybe like millennials and Gen Z who are seeing what the just the horrible um, sort of image that Fox News has somewhat established for itself and has lost so much credibility with younger generations. They're thinking maybe again, consciously or unconsciously, but like we need to do this a different way. Yeah, that's a really good point. We are getting to that generational shift. And yeah. that's, I think, something I, I had underestimated in, in my initial reading of all of this. And even beyond Christmas, just like a kind of reimagined, a different version of face of conservatism, too, that actually kind of distinguishes itself from Fox News. Right. I can't I don't know for sure if that's how Candace feels. Um, but yeah, it's definitely and again, a- again, I, I just reminding everybody after all of this, like we don't want to attribute malice to anybody without evidence. I think there's plenty of evidence to show why Fox News has their opinions and what their malicious ish intents are. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to like turn around and say Candace Cameron is being a bigoted at like I don't believe that. Yeah, I believe I don't I don't know that. Let me rephrase that. I don't know that. There's some evidence to suggest that, but there's also evidence to say she's just doing the most effective economic move. Yeah. And some of it also just might be stupid and not necessarily (laughs) malicious, you know, like to some degree. I mean, harboring for me just beneath the surface when it comes to this conversation is always a little bit like a this is so dumb. Why are we even arguing about Christmas on either side? Mm -hmm. This is so dumb, you know, so (laughs) it's just like. Yeah, and I mean, and that's super, super evident in like the the glut of Christian movies that are about the war on Christmas, mm-hmm. right? About some small town being, you know, served by some Jewish-sounding-looking lawyer mm-hmm. that you know they can't have their Christmas display or whatever. There's a lot of like these, you know, here's the Scrooge that's playing the ACLU role, and he's eventually going to be converted by the good old hometown Christian folk. Right. There's a lot of that stuff. In fact, there's even a weird one. And there's a series of Christian movies that are literally called What Would Jesus Do? Oh. And the second or the third one is about a guy who works in the carpentry industry and is being like threatened by processed wood. Like big, big lumber is coming to get him. Oh my God. 
and it's like connected to like a church and all it's like so there's this weird like through line of these stupid panics that like there's so many explanations that are easier and also so many things that matter more Right. I think that's actually more the case, because if we get into the like, well, maybe we can't debunk some of these things. Maybe there really is intent to take God out of school. It's just like there's also just so many other things Christians should be concerned with. And I would dare I say that Christ would even say they should be concerned with. Absolutely. Like, why are we talking about like, why are we talking about a Christmas tree or colors being removed when you've got guys like, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, what's that pastor? Mark, not, not Driscoll. Another guy who was just reinstated after a barely a slap on the wrist of a sexual scandal. Right. Really? You're going to sit here and talk about candy cane tracks are the thing that's bringing down Christianity and not the sexual predators that you're employing and protecting. Like, and I know, again, it's apples and oranges. I'm not equivocating here, but it just is indicative to me of the misplaced emotion, the mm-hmm. vigor. Like, yeah. get mad about things for sure. There are plenty of things in this world to get mad about. Why are you picking these? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it we could probably even agree on, to be honest. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Teddy, thank you for waging the battlefield with me today. Thank uh, you, Nick. I hope you have a really, really Merry Christmas. Oh, my God. How dare you do this to me? <laughs> I'm going to call the ACLU. <laughs> Actually, you know, I want to remind everyone that Christmas has only ever been made illegal once in this country. And that was in 1659 when the Puritans who founded this country... <laughs> Right. Literally made Christmas celebrations illegal because they thought they were too secular. Hmm. So the only people to ever really ban Christmas in the United States were Christians. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. Thanks so much for joining today's discussion on Oh God, I Forgot About That. If you enjoyed the episode and don't want to miss future conversations, please follow us so you get notifications of upcoming episode releases. You can also interact with us between episodes on sites like Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Make sure to search for us and chat with us in those places. Oh, and one last thing. We'd be so grateful if you rated the podcast to keep us visible and ensure that others hear about us. Thanks again for joining us on this journey of remembering. Talk to you soon.